Okay, democracy obviously leads to the second major issue of my work, communicative rationality. I was always convinced there is, that there is in everyday communicative life, everyday communicative communication, also a kind of push to his reasons, to be more or less reasonable, to give answers to the questions, why did you say that? Why did you do that? And uh, so that was the motivation to pursue a bit further the issue of the kind of reason that is, so to say, built into our everyday language. Episode 9, The Politics of Acclamation. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report. I'm Scott Kuhn. This episode concentrates on interrogating what political philosophy, particularly the political philosophy of Jürgen Habermas, can teach us about our current circumstances and also addresses itself to some enduring problems in our collective understanding of politics and how they should be reassessed in the light of the Trumpist insurrection on January 6th. Almost nothing I have to say here is going to be original to me. But what I'm doing is synthesizing and vulgarizing, if you will, uh, the work of people who are smarter and more thoughtful than I am. As much as possible, I'm going to give credit where credit is due, and any errors in interpretation and attribution are entirely my own. Uh, that's usually a bit of a throwaway line you might find in the preface of an actual work of scholarship, but I, I really mean it. Uh, some of the questions I'm addressing in this episode are absolutely central to modern and postmodern political philosophy, and so they've been addressed in many different places by many different authors. Uh, what I'm trying to do here is offer my own take on these questions, based on my own readings, without the encumbrance of laborious footnotes, uh, because this is a podcast. I'd also like to offer some tentative solutions to these problems, with particular attention to the specific characteristics of our current dilemma. My unusual method of proceeding is to begin at the beginning, the very beginning, but that would be tedious, so we'll skip over ancient medieval political thought, Machiavelli, and what some would call the inception of modern political thought. Even the rise of the bourgeoisie, the consequent Enlightenment-era development of political liberalism, and all of its attendant clockwork mechanisms of constitutionalism, inherent rights, social contract theory, utilitarianism, laissez-faire capitalism, freedom, all of that, and focus on just two related elements that I think are especially problematic for our current time. The relationship between political elites and mass publics, and the problem of the public sphere. So rather than going back to Hammurabi, our beginning here is Jürgen Habermas's 1962 work, The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, an Inquiry into a Category of Bourgeois Society. This work kicked off over 50 years of literature and political philosophy in various related fields in the social sciences and humanities. It is, first and foremost, a normative theory. Habermas supports the idea of a vigorous public sphere as a vital functioning heart of a deliberative enterprise of crafting a program for political action by governments and liberal democracies. And when I say critical in this context, I don't mean merely essential, which of course uh, it is. Um, it's, he's using it as a, uh, in a manner that's similar to, uh, but also perhaps a distinct from, the way other members of the Frankfurt School 
use the term. And I'm going to somewhat skirt the issue of what he means here by criticism, uh, critique, or critical work, because I'm not sure it's really appropriate to superimpose what he wrote in his very first published work, uh, and then superimpose 50 years of how he uses that term later on. So for our purposes, before we stray into epistemology, let's just stipulate that for Habermas, what constitutes criticism is a very high bar, and it transcends ideological point scoring and almost none of the discursive political debate in the United States at the moment uh, would really qualify as the kind of criticism Habermas intends as the normative ideal. So in Structural Transformation, Habermas describes the public sphere and tracks its historical development from uh, the salons uh, and the coffee houses of uh, the Enlightenment in the 18th, 19th centuries um, through to the present day. Well, 1961 and 1962. Um, he pays a lot of attention to the German elections of 1957. Uh, for some reason, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it's a story of decline. And um, ideally, for Habermas, the public sphere itself, this sort of universal salon, um, isn't merely the domain of experts. Uh, it includes the participation of everyone who's actually capable of participation. And the structural transformation part of this theory comes from his dissatisfaction with the quality and character of public debate in modern conditions. Um, the bourgeois society and politics presuppose a kind of critical debate that no longer exists. And this is evident in any number of ways. For example, in the way that we've moved from a society based on a world of letters to passive consumption of culture provided by mass media. Another example is that rather than a rational debate led by individuals, individuals effectively retreat from political concerns, and real debate is actually conducted by what had been mediating institutions, such as political parties and interest groups. Now, any number of writers have taken Habermas to task on this point, uh, claiming that you know perhaps he's looking at uh, this, you know, he's longing really for this, this kind of uh, critical political debate that never truly was. Um, I mean, we know from the historical record that uh, the salons and the coffee houses were inclusive, right? Um, it was broadly speaking, you know, many literate people, although. Men were disproportionately represented. I mean, there are any number of problems um, with setting this up as the ideal for what our political debate uh, in the public sphere ought to be. Uh, but we'll just set that aside and uh, just acknowledge that that's something that has been written. And uh, instead, just go directly to Habermas himself and turn to one of his original and freshest formulations from nearly 60 years ago that I think seems remarkably prescient in our current political and social context. Quote, Along the path from a public critically reflecting on its culture to one that merely consumes it, the public sphere in the world of letters, which at one point could still be distinguished from that in the political realm, has lost its specific character. For the culture propagated by the mass media is a culture of integration. It not only integrates information with critical debate and the journalistic format with the literary forms of the psychological novel in a, to a combination of entertainment and 
advice governed by the principle of human interest. At the same time, it is, in, is flexible enough to assimilate elements of advertising. Indeed, to serve itself as a kind of super slogan, if that, if it did not already exist, could have been invented for the purpose of public relations serving the cause of the status quo. The public sphere assumes advertising functions. The more it can be deployed as a vehicle for political and economic propaganda, the more it becomes unpolitical as a whole and pseudo-privatized. So skipping ahead a bit, uh, Habermas describes the creation of a new kind of public sphere he calls intermediate, wherein, quote, the sectors of society that had been absorbed by the state and the sectors of the state that had been taken over by society intermeshed without involving rational, critical, political debate on the part of private people. The public was largely relieved of this task by other institutions, on the one hand by associations in which the collectively organized private interests directly attempted to take on the form of political agency, on the other hand by parties which, fused with the organs of public authority, established themselves, as it were, above the public whose institutions they once were. The process of the politically relevant exercise and equilibration of power now takes place directly between the private bureaucracies, special interest associations, parties, and public administration. The public as such is included only sporadic, sporadically in this circuit of power, and even then it is brought in only to contribute its acclamation. End quote. So, absent a uh, meaningfully participatory public sphere, we're left with one that is a, a denuded public sphere based on politics of acclamation, as the title of this episode, rather than the participation of the public in a rational debate. Here, Habermas has anticipated precisely the politics of the Internet age, at a time when the best computer in the world was the Atlas, the first supercomputer, impressive for its time, but less capable than a single chip inside any electronic device in your home. So, um, I'm going to try to just distill this problem of the structurally transformed public sphere into its essential qualities, uh, with an eye toward remembering that the problem is it's, it's no longer public, right? You've got these mediating institutions such as parties, um, you know, unions, uh, what we would call interest groups, right, that are engaging in public debate uh, that is, you know, then disseminated and consumed passively by the, the mass of the people. So um, this is very much top-down, right? This isn't rising up from the coffee houses and the salons. This is coming down from these medi mediating institutions and perhaps elites as well, right, uh, who are basically telling people what to think and that they can no longer explain why they believe what they believe. And Habermas sees this as essential to democracy. So in this one short excerpt, I think, Habermas diagnoses three essential and interrelated problems with the structurally transformed public sphere. And uh, these relate to what I'm calling the, the politics of acclamation. Firstly, it creates a politics of consumption and spectacle rather than participation. Secondly, it preserves the status quo. And thirdly, it is depoliticized. 
Now, that's not the only thing that can be said even about this one short passage, right? I just don't want to get bogged down in textual exegesis. So it's not book report, looking at one passage, and then kind of giving you a feel for how it relates to our, our current predicament. Um, and I'm not even going to defend these bits of Habermas's theory that I'm focusing on and borrowing from. Um, Habermas has already done that at length, and it has proven to be wildly successful in an interdisciplinary sense, uh, internationally. And you've done it far better than I, I could, and this is not a replacement by any means. Uh, you know, go out and grab a copy. Uh, I'm using a translation by uh, Thomas Berger, first published in paperback by MIT Press in 1991. If English isn't your native language, um, of course you can read in the original German, if that suits you, or grab an edition in one of the 40 other languages in which it's, it's available. So, um, first I'd like to talk about uh, what I'm calling the uh, politics of consumption and spectacle in Habermas's structural transformation and how it relates to our current predicament. Now, in the structurally transformed public sphere, we take part in politics as consumers and spectators rather than participants. At first blush, one might imagine that the creation of the internet has made this criticism less relevant. Um, we all now have the means to engage in political debate by blogging, by using social media, and by listening to and producing podcasts, for that matter. Um, now, it seems to be a healthy development because it, it provides new avenues for citizen participation in the public sphere. In theory, anyway. And to my mind, that's before you look at the actual content that's being produced and disseminated in the new world of digital media. It certainly doesn't live up to the standards that Habermas is proposing as the normative ideal. There's a reason why Fox News had to take down its comments section. By and large, we don't engage in critical debate on the Internet. We have a simulacrum of debate, but it's largely simply based on acclamation rather than reasoned criticism. People are simply parroting things that other people have told them to say. Uh, people are garnering likes. Most of the interactions are not actual interactions whereby people are, you know, saying something, right? They're going for the dopamine rush of, you know, merely uh, getting likes and attention. And they're pretending that this is somehow participating in politics in a meaningful way. I personally grew up around computers. One of my hobbies back in the 1980s was writing basic code on uh, our Commodore 64. Uh, personally, very often in my technological life, I've been an early adopter of digital media technology. Um, yet, I remember when Twitter uh, first came about, I deliberately didn't sign up for it. Uh, the only, I, my first Twitter account is actually the, the Twitter account for this show. Um, even though it's not as popular as some of the other platforms like Facebook overall, among people interested in politics, Twitter is probably number one. But I had questions about how this social media application has a character limit, uh, is what that's going to do to our politics, right? Whether it be 140 or 280 characters, um, generally speaking, that, that automatically reduces your politics to uh, a slogan. Right, which is something Habermas talks about. Uh, you know, we've, our goal is thought, not sloganeering. What Habermas is telling us in 1962, though, is kind of interesting because the, it would seem to me that the logical implication of what he's saying is that the character limit of Twitter isn't actually stunting our political discourse, but rather that the popularity of Twitter 
is actually reflective of um, our, our, the, the politics that's based on acclamation, right? That, you know, that it's, it's kind of paradoxical. It's, it's not technology first. We already had, back in 1962, uh, when, you know, the best computers in the room weren't networked, <laughs> they took up a room. The best computers in the world took, were room-sized. Um, and what we're doing when we engage in politics on social media is still largely a form of consumption rather than debate. The medium and the message are perfectly aligned. And so it's not that Twitter reduces us to sloganeering, but the, the application itself is perfect for a world in which our discourse has already been reduced to slogans. Now, in the political science literature on participation, uh, political participation, the empirical literature, there's something called the hierarchy of political participation, which comes from Lester Mulbrath's 1965 book on political participation. Now, this book uh, came about right in the time uh, most people call the behavioral revolution, a very exciting time in American political science when new methods were becoming available, those supercomputers I talked about, uh, and the field itself was becoming much more empirical. It, it went away from things like history and law uh, to become more aligned with other social sciences, uh, borrowing experimental methodologies from, uh, let's say, psychology, right? So deliberately um, looking more at sort of, you know, numerical and, uh, you know, relationships, right? Being able to quantify things directly. And indeed, with a new emphasis on formal theory as well. Um, but putting that to one side, uh, Milbrath is basically describing, using the best empirical data available at the time, how people take part in politics. And he has a, a nice little uh, graph. The basic conceptual model he uses is still used today. Uh, I still do it when I, I teach intro. He proposed three categories of political participation. So these three categories of political participation are uh, spectator activities, which are at the base of the pyramid, transitional activities, which are in the middle, and uh, gladiatorial activities at the apex of the pyramid. So there's this pyramid of political participation with these broad mass-based activities uh, that require the least amount of input at the bottom, least amount of effort. Um, then there's these transitional categories, which you know are, are things um, such as I think the lowest ranking one uh, is attending a rally. Right? Uh, you know, you have to get tickets, you have to travel to the event, perhaps. You know, it's a little bit more involved than voting, perhaps. Um, this is Milbrath is writing before voter suppression. Well, uh, unless you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to include the American South, nonetheless, um, before it became as systematic. So maybe, maybe if it's possible, we could move voting up a notch. Um, but at the lowest level, you have people engaging in this mass political behavior, such as voting, and you move up. Uh, you have people writing letters to elected officials, right? That involves more. You have to figure out the address. You have to figure out the proper forms of the address. Um, back in his time, certainly, you would have had to... Uh, I could type it up or write it out by hand, pay for a stamp. A little bit harder uh, in most instances of voting. And uh, there's fewer people engaged in these transitional kinds of activities than there are at the mass activities, the spectator activities uh, down at the bottom. And fewer people are at the apex of the pyramid, right? Which includes things such as 
working within their political party, uh, being an active member, right? So going out, canvassing neighborhoods, participating in uh, precinct meetings, local precinct elections, um, and volunteering on political campaigns, going to your, your local party uh, meeting at, at the district level or the state level, uh, or even running for office, right? You know, sort of be at the apex of the pyramid. So, um, now this is a political science model, but it does, it's reflective in, in some sense how we think of politics, right? Most people think of politics as, as merely voting, right? The least active people will think, well, it's, it's just voting and perhaps engaging people on, on social media, uh, which is, you know, obviously something that wasn't available um, at, in 1965. Um, but to my mind, one of the consequences of the politics of acclamation is that people no longer seem to understand how this works. I've been struck going through the charging documents and the press reports by the number of capital insurrection defendants who are described as apolitical until Trump comes along. Um, that, you know, their neighbors and their friends say, well, they didn't really have any interest in politics, but then they saw this thing on the internet about QAnon and adrenochrome and, um, or, you know, they started attending these militia meetings, um, or people like in the earlier episode, Shane Leiden Jenkins, right? Uh, who's a felon. And the first time he's eligible to vote, uh, you know, he casts his vote for Trump. Um, so, you know, new people who are integrated into politics. And it seems like our, our culture doesn't necessarily do a good job of explaining that there are more ways to engage and there are more ways to participate. Move up that hierarchy, right? If you uh, really see politics as an existential threat, then do something about it. Knock on your neighbor's doors. And it's been shocking to me. I've actually engaged, yes, Trump and supporters online, and, you know, they're upset about these things, and I'll ask them, well, how many people's doors did you knock, you know? And it is true that the Trump administration, uh, the Trump campaign, rather, had a uh, sort of traditional GoTV campaign, um, but it seemed to me that they actually spent a lot more time worrying about things like poll watchers, right, to challenge people at the polls than they did about the actual uh, old-fashioned grassroots campaigning. And, you know, in this, I think it's a good example of how Habermas really fails to appreciate the role that political parties play in this process of getting people active. If he's got a theory that likes participation uh, and democracy, then political parties institutionalize that. And it's self-selected, right? It's not mandatory. Um, but I think his problem is that they are actually driving the debate, at least in terms of this theories of communicative action, right? They're driving the debate. Um, and so that limits full rationality on the part of the public. Um, now, the thing is, though, I, I think that, for me, political participation itself is an educative process. And I think that among this sort of Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, um, it's gotten removed from that. Uh, the way you engage in politics is to uh, watch videos on YouTube, to troll people online, and to attend massive rallies. Um, and if you've never knocked on someone's door and asked them to, you know, to register to vote um, or ask them if they have a plan to vote, there's a lot of basic facts that you don't know. You, know? you don't know that it's actually quite hard 
uh, to encourage people to vote, and that uh, it would be nearly impossible to actually perpetrate the, the kind and the scale of fraud uh, that uh, you know the the big lie people, the advocates of Sidney Powell and their ilk, uh, have have claimed is the case. So, and they also don't know what is normal after an election loss. Anyone who's been in politics for a while has lost, you know, probably 50% of their elections, unless they're, they're working for some very small French party, in which case it's 100% of their elections. The normal thing that political parties do is that they understand, okay, well, we lost, but there's another, another election coming up. And so the normal thing to do is to re-energize, refocus party activists, and uh, recenter them on grassroots political activism. But these new people who are brought into the process, um, parties try to channel their energies and establish expectations. Trump was sort of transcended party, right? So it was more of a cult of personality than a, sort of a traditional Republican. And I think part of the consequence of that was that he brought in all these new people, um, and what do they know? Well, I, I go to the rallies, I participate online, and, and that's it. So when they lose an election, you know, there's not this normal infrastructure of, okay, well, that was terrible, but you know, we can win next time. Um, and many couldn't believe that you know that they lost, and you know the loss was legitimate. Uh, incidentally, th this isn't the first time that that we actually saw this. Um, you know, another example would be in 2016 and even in 2020 in the Democratic primaries. We had a lot of people, mainly younger people, who had been disaffected from politics or never engaged in politics in the first place because they, were, they had been too young. Um, and uh, their preferred candidate, Senator Bernie Sanders, lost both times in the primary. And they pointed to the various obstacles that they felt that the DNC and the Democratic establishment put in the path of their candidate. Uh, I don't want to you know, rehash that, there, this, but it's noteworthy to see what happened next. What did Bernie Sanders do? And this goes to the understanding of, of the role of elites in, the, in this entire process. Following the, the Democratic primary losses in 2016 and uh, 2020, Bernie Sanders told them to move on and build the movement. Not only that, he told them to support Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, the people who had actually just defeated him. You know, he had made a conscious decision many years ago as, as a member of the left, the real left, to participate in democratic politics and democratic electoral politics, understanding Condorcet's law and how uh, the two-party system works, and to uh, try to push electoral politics in this country uh, to the left. And, uh, you know, he's lost elections before, right? And so he, he knows how it works. Okay, well, what do you do? You go back to the drawing board, you tell people, don't worry, you accept the loss, you try to beat your main partisan opponents, right? You know, because the primary isn't the only election, and if you are active in grassroots politics, active at the precinct level, active at the district level, active at the state level, you're going to have more of a say in what Joe Biden uh, and Congress does uh, than if anyone on the opposite side of the fence winds up winning the, the general election. So that's normal. That's what political candidates do. That's what Goldwater did in 1964. He rebuilt the Republican Party, and that's how we wound up uh, with Reagan. He successfully pushed the party to a right. He came, you know, so many of these people, including Hillary Clinton, uh, but so many of these people uh, who wind up coming up in the, the 70s 
and 80s, uh, you know, their first political experience uh, was in the Goldwater election of 1964. Of course, some of them, their first political experience may have been the George Wallace election in 1968 as well. Um, but what, what did Donald Trump do when he lost in 2020? He did the opposite of what Bernie Sanders did. And so this is the difference between a candidate who's committed democracy, like Bernie Sanders is, uh, to participatory electoral politics, and someone who has no agenda other than seeking political power for its own sake. The Trump campaign played into this. And, the, you know, again, they recruited more, uh, you know, poll watchers, right, uh, to stop the steal sometimes than to engage in traditional get-out-the-vote activities. Um, you know, again, it did that, but for many of the, the Trump supporters, you know, this focus on campaign events, on bike rallies and truck rallies and uh, these kind of things, putting flags on their truck. And that's not how you win elections. It's not, we don't, there's no flag college where the people who show up with the most flags on their truck uh, wind up winning the presidency. So the focus was on spectacle rather than the proving grassroots methods that we've used to win elections in this country and you know people use uh, in many other countries as well. So his campaign was almost uniquely focused at the top of the ticket. And there's very little emphasis on the kind of party building that we saw in the Democratic Party under Howard Dean uh, in 2004. In many ways, that election winds up uh, producing Obama because of the strength of the, the 50 state strategy and the strength of the uh, party infrastructures at the state and local level that Dean builds up. Uh, and for that matter, um, the Republican Party under Michael Steele is great success in 2010, um, where you know they they basically retake Congress and uh, wind up being able to block the Obama's agenda for uh, six years. And of course, we saw what the Republican Party did with Steele. Of course, um, rather ungrateful, but nonetheless, that's that's what you do, right? When you lose, you know. Um, those are both good examples, you know, Howard Dean in 2004 reacting to loss in the presidential election, very close loss, uh, which, you know, if you wanted to have a claim about some kind of malfeasance, anyway. Uh, and Michael Steele doing, did it, you know, in uh, 2010 following the, the 2008 loss uh, to Barack Obama. So even the basic dynamics of the 2020 election seem to be presaged here by Habermas's understanding of the decline of rational debate. The election campaign on both sides was very much oriented toward motivating people within the base, not converting swing voters or independents. So this is not a conversion debate. Uh, this was not a, you know, um, something that was aimed at the median voter as much as it was a base election and trying to make sure that all the, they, they got all their voters uh, to the polls. And by the way, it, both sides uh, did, did a very good job uh, at that in the 2020 election. But I think Habermas would say, well, we should probably have a, more of a politics of persuasion uh, rather than simply these mechanistic devices for increasing turnout of people who are already committed. All right, second thing politics of, of acclimation can do is it's aimed at preserving the status quo. Now, this is something Habermas mentions only in passing in this passage, but features more prominently elsewhere. He writes that mass media culture is kind of super slogan aimed at perpetuating the status quo. Um, I think that's relevant because uh, we saw in Trump a politician who cares and cares not at all for the status quo 
except insofar as the status quo preserves his own self-interest. When it came to building a future for the Republican Party and electoral politics or preserving the integrity of the Justice Department, he doesn't really seem to have much understanding or concern for uh, institutions. I'm going to say uh, something a little uncharacteristic for me, um, but not all things in the status quo are bad. The fact that we have more or less free and fair elections is a good thing. That's part of the status quo. We can talk about reforming electoral rules, moving to some form of proportional representation or ranked choice voting, moving to a national popular vote or some other reform at the presidential level, and the need to prevent efforts of voter suppression. But overall, we have fair elections, uh, even if there's some malapportionment baked into the pie. And we're not very good at telling success stories in that regard. Uh, the response to the 2000 presidential election was largely a success story. The hanging chads and the butterfly ballots are gone, and many more states now use paper ballots in one form or another or have a verifiable paper trail. If you're interested in winning elections, then it's actually important to signal to voters that their vote matters. That's why it's inconceivable to imagine that a traditional candidate, one who cared for the future of their party, would do what Trump did in undermining the legitimacy of elections themselves. If your message to voters is that elections are going to be stolen anyway, there's little point in electoral politics. Um, Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's former political advisor, may have described himself as a Leninist, but really he's a nihilist. He's willing to blow up everything in the cause of promoting a white ethnostate. Trump may have dumped Bannon, but that same kind of impulse that we saw is visible when he alleged election fraud even the election of 2016, an election that he won. The danger in this moment is almost uniquely Trumpian uh, in that this impulse becomes, could become the new normal if other actors in political elites within the Republican Party adopt this as their new standard, then um, that's disastrous for our politics. So... Ordinarily, concern for the status quo is actually one of the factors restraining the Republican Party in particular. If we no longer have a rational discourse around electoral politics and we're unconstrained for concerns for the norms of the electoral process, it's hard to see where that leads, other than to the main alternative to electoral politics, which is political violence. <coughs> I think the outlook's even more pessimistic than what Habermas suggests. Uh, He's concerned about a world where public debate is stifled, new emancipatory ideals are impossible, and election outcomes are determined by people who are merely choosing between possibilities offered up to them by various political institutions and associations. In many of his examples, he keeps referring back to the German election of 1957, in which the left received a real drubbing at the hands of the CDU, CSU, and Con, uh, Chancellor Conrad Adenauer. Um, our current political situation the victory of something like uh, the ordo-liberalism of Conrad Adenauer isn't the worst possible outcome. So it seems to me that, historically in general, the kind of decline in the, pub in the, of the public sphere Habermas is describing is probably you know, going to be inherently conservative in its direction. Um, but that doesn't mean that the end result is you know, necessarily someone far more reactionary and less committed to democracy than Adenauer. And in this, I think the elite orientation to the status quo is pivotal. And this is something that may have changed fundamentally within the Republican Party itself. What if his lack of concerns for traditional norms and the values of democracy becomes 
the new normal for the Republican Party? What if the mass of the party, conditioned to an ever more reactionary vision of an ethnostate, loses faith in electoral politics due to changing demographic realities? The Trumpian version of a politics of acclamation does seek to preserve the status quo, but it, it seeks to preserve a mythical version of America based on the, uh, the demographic predominance of a white Christian America that no longer exists. And I think the events of January 6th showed how Trumpism is more than willing to overthrow the status quo system of electoral politics in the name of a new revisionist status quo, a white Christian ethnostate that's authorized by the acclamation of real Americans, right? Even if they're a minority of the actual electorate. All right, the third thing that I think is characteristic of this politics of acclamation um, is depoliticization. Now, this word can mean any number of things in political theory, but the meaning in the context of the passage that I cited is pretty clear because Habermas supports it with a footnote, uh, which refers to a content analysis of the Bildzeitung a popular German tabloid that still exists today as simply built. Um, Habermas is very much upset that there's not a lot of politics in this newspaper and that it devotes too many column centimeters to topics such as sports and entertainment. Um, the selection of this newspaper is particularly a, an interest, inter, interesting choice in and of itself um, in that, you know, it's a newspaper for people who like pictures more than reading. Um, I think that the continued existence and continued popularity of Build is anathema to the kind of a, a critical, rational dialogue Habermas sets forward as the model for political discourse. So he's taking this, you know, depolitization, regardless of what it means in other contexts, quite literally, right? It's like, no, this is, there's fewer uh, issues of political import in this newspaper than what there ought to be. Um, and it was established in 1952 and it had just been through its first decade uh, to become you know, the most popular uh, tabloid in Germany. So um, much of the discussion of what Habermas means by criticism, the idea of a depoliticized public sphere is a concept he goes on to develop much more thoroughly than what he's presenting in this earlier work. So now there's a, a fair amount of literature on political science, political theory, and uh, related social sciences and humanities on the subject of depolitization. Um, so in the context of what I'm calling politics of acclamation, though, it takes on a specific meaning. And it serves as an alternative to the hard work of electoral politics, right? Electoral politics, hard work. Depoliticized politics, not hard work. Uh, it's a reaction against the claims that expert knowledge would impose upon us. Uh, authenticity, rather than rational debate, becomes the highest standard. Um, and this is particularly useful for populist politics. So someone like a Donald Trump, um, you know, who sells truth claims on the basis of this is what real Americans support, then you no longer have to worry about claims of experts or claims even of the numerical majority. It simply becomes a politics of assertion immune to rational debate. Politics ought to be the product of communicative reason. Um, and to the extent that it's not, this is a form of depolitization. Politics within your own caucus itself becomes redundant if everyone follows a party line that's set by the strong man at the top. 
and it becomes a self-justifying circle. Trump says something, real Americans agree with him, and then he can simply justify it on that basis. Politics becomes a matter not of debate, but of orthodoxy and heterodoxy. A matter of theology, a politics of faith. So this is a politics that asks very little in the way of thoughtful engagement on the part of the masses. They don't have to do reading or research. They only have to trust the leader and distrust the enemies of their leader or identified as synonymous with the elite, even if the leader is himself a multi-billionaire. And the people who engage in this kind of politics can believe that they're being good citizens. They have they've identified their friends and their enemies, and they're acting accordingly. Um, this kind of politics is very much like what Habermas would find objectionable in the Bildzeitung. Um, doesn't require a lot of column inches. You can get funny pages, uh, football scores, and uh, sexy models, right? So taken all together, the politics of a fully transformed public sphere, politics based on acclamation, appears to be here to stay, particularly to the extent that we have political elites who are disinterested in maintaining democratic norms and a mass of people lazy enough to simply follow whatever the elites establish as a new orthodoxy. How do we break free from the, the frightening, Caesaristic possibilities of such a politics or even an anti-politics? Unfortunately, the solution is more politics. So if there are reactionaries who seek to reduce politics to uh, some populist orthodoxy, the urgent necessity of our time is to construct a politics that demonstrates how they have misunderstood and perverted populism. If there are those who would reduce politics to mass political rallies and acts of political violence, we must oppose the political violence and redouble our efforts at constructing a politics based on the full participation of an active and informed citizenry. Most of all, to be thoughtful in the face of thoughtlessness, to be sensible in the face of nonsense, and to be willing to question what we believe, even as others seek to redefine politics as a rigid orthodoxy. I have faith in the processes of electoral democracy, but I'm very much aware that no one is coming to the rescue. We have to do it ourselves. And in this project, we have to take our allies as they are and not to be too concerned with maintaining our own rigid orthodoxies. All right. So I realize that this is a bit shorter than usual. That's intentional. Um, events in the Capitol insurrection investigations have been heating up, and there have been a lot of de developments. And I expect that the pace of this, these developments will continue to quicken for a while. Um, I'm going to try to start, start to try to put out episodes a little bit more quickly to try to accommodate this, uh, but they're all going to be a, a little bit shorter as a consequence. And I'm going to try to alternate between these thematic episodes, such as uh, today's, and episodes that are based on current events. The next episode is going to focus on the developments of the pretrial detention cases that have been ongoing, and also the latest slew of plea deals, which are going to tell us a great deal about how the majority of these cases are going to be resolved. I'm also going to address the prospects for the new House Select Committee on the January 6th attack, which has announced its first hearing has been scheduled for July 28th. And finally, I'm going to examine uh, how an Obama appointee on the D.C. Circuit Court wound up authoring a decision that's allowed all but the most uh, serious allegations of the defendants facing uh, the worst allegations, the worst of the worst defendants, uh, to be exempt from pretrial detention. As always, please rate and subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, 
please address them to me on Twitter at C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P. Thanks so much.